Hello and welcome to the 58th episode of the Uncovered True Crime podcast. My name is Stephanie and each week we discuss an My name is Stephanie and in each episode we discuss a different My name is Stephanie and in each episode we discuss a different unsolved true crime case ranging from missing persons, unsolved murders and suspicious deaths. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher as well as other podcast streaming apps. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Uncover underscore pod, on Instagram at Uncover True Crime Pod, and you can join the Uncovered True Crime discussion group on Facebook. As I'm sure many of you will have noticed, I have not done my typical intro that I usually start all my episodes with, and that's because today's episode is a little bit different, but one that I am very excited to share with you today. A few months ago, I was contacted by a man called Stephen Ahern, who wrote a book called A Kitchen Painted in Blood, The Unsolved Disappearance of Joan Reish. As some of you may know, I covered Joan's disappearance back in episode 32, and when Stephen contacted me and shared some of his opinions about the case and stated that he would be quite happy to come on to the podcast and talk about Joan's disappearance, I was really, really excited. I immediately went out and purchased his book, which I will leave links to in the description of this episode because it is a very, very good book. It's very informative and it gives a lot of information that not only was I not able to source for my podcast, but that's not generally well known about Joan's case. Today's episode will not be an interview with Stephen. I am not a journalist. That is not what I do. Today's episode will be a general discussion about who Joan was as a person, the details of her case and the theories that we both have about what may have happened to her that fateful day. I feel very fortunate that I was able to talk to Stephen for this episode and I really, really hope that you guys enjoy it. But I'm going to stop rabbiting on now. Here is the episode. I hope you enjoy it. So today on the podcast, we've got a very special guest. This is Stephen Ahern, who um, wrote a book about Joan's case. Um, So hello, Stephen. Hello, how are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Very good, very good. So Stephen wrote a book a few years ago called A Kitchen Painted in Blood, The Unsolved Disappearance of Joan Reish. So Stephen, do you want to kind of go into how you heard about, like your background how you heard about Joan's case and what inspired you to write this book? Uh, I was a lawyer for 40 years, um, wound up in, in-house with a corporation and uh, worked about 40 years doing that. I retired in 2015 and I decided that I would probably try to write a book. My wife is a big fan of true crime, so she's gotten me interested in it. And I recalled a case from my childhood. I lived in Arlington, Massachusetts, and two towns over from us was Lincoln, Massachusetts. And a woman disappeared in 1961. Her name was Joan Rich. And it was a case that had a lot of attention in the newspapers. The reason that I recall it is that my father and mother, with me in the back seat, were driving home from seeing an uncle. And I remember my father pointing over to the street and saying that's the street that Joan Rich disappeared from. And for reasons unknown to me, I recall that for 50 years. (laughs) And as a result of that, um, I decided that that might be an interesting case to look at. So I made a Freedom of Information Act request with the district attorney's office in Middlesex County, which covers Lincoln. And um, I wound up, somewhat to my surprise, getting about 5,000 pages worth of records from them. 
Wow. I also did a lot of research. There were hundreds of newspaper articles on the case and a variety of other materials. And it was a case that I was, wasn't was sure if it had been solved, and it hadn't been. I always thought that it was a case that should have been. It's a case that's somewhat forgotten in New England, despite the fact that it was front page news for a couple of weeks. And so basically that's the, I, I felt that someone should write a story for Joan to see if possibly the investigation could be reignited or people would come forward uh, to talk about the case. So that's basically why I got involved. That is really, really interesting. It really, really is. And I think like the amount of information you got from Freedom Information Act request is really interesting because I know a lot of people who have gone on to write books about cases or even family and friends have a really, really hard time with that and the police just refuse to reveal anything. Correct. Or if they do, a lot of it's retracted. So I think that's really, really interesting um, that you were able to get so much information because... You go into a lot of information in the book that obviously in a simple podcast, no one could kind of cover everything that you went into. But that's really amazing that you were able to get so much information. Massachusetts is very stingy in responding to police requests like that, or requests for police information. And I was surprised by it. In fact, someone had brought a lawsuit 20 years before to try to get the documents uh, disclosed, and they hadn't been. So I was, I felt there was probably a less than 50% chance that I'd get them, but in fact I did. Do you think that the fact that you worked in law, obviously you were a lawyer for many years, do you think that that maybe helped you in your quest to get the Freedom of Information Act request? It, it probably didn't hurt, but I think at the time, the Middlesex District Attorney's Office was, was under pressure for not disclosing information in several cases. And I believe that they decided to look at some of these older cases and and see whether or not there was a basis for further investigation. And if there wasn't a clear basis, for example, no DNA evidence, they began disclosing some of this information. So I think I basically asked at a right time. I think that's that's quite important as well, because especially in newer cases, you know, they won't want to release anything to protect the integrity of the investigation. Absolutely. And obviously, I'm not saying they wouldn't want to to protect the integrity of Joan's case, but because it happened so long ago, perhaps the information that they would provide maybe wouldn't hurt the case as much as, say, if it had happened five years ago instead of 50. As I mentioned, they fought a case and won in court And that was 30 years after the event. So, of course, I was doing it 55 years or so after. So that does make a difference. Stephen, obviously you were able to have all these documents, which was really amazing for your research for this book. As far as kind of talking to people involved in the case, were you able able to to do that? I I was not. I, I, I made several attempts with the Rich family and with some of the friends of the Rich family. The problem I had was nearly all of the witnesses were in their late 80s. And it was very hard for me to to make contact. And I didn't want to push maybe as hard as I might have with a younger Absolutely, yeah, because I know that over the years, the Reich family, in particular Martin Reich, who sadly passed away several years ago, have been very private, I believe, about Joan's case. I don't believe that Martin has given maybe any kind of, when he was alive, gave any sort of public interviews. 
about no, the case. Very few, yes, you're right. Balance obviously like respecting their their privacy as Absolutely. well, which is because you know it doesn't matter how many years you know Correct. this case happened many many decades ago, but it's still as fresh to them as if it had happened yesterday. I mean, because Joan's children are still are still with us. So before we start going into Joan's case, because today it's not going to be an interview. I'm not a journalist. Today we're just going to be discussing Joan's case. If anyone listening to this hasn't already listened to episode 32 where I discuss Joan's case I would highly recommend you do that you know we are going to talk about the case and do like have a a sum up of it but I think in order to put everything we're going to talk about into context I would highly recommend that you listen to the original episode so now we're just going to start talking about Joan's case and her life before she went missing Joan Reish was born on the 4th of August 1930 and her birth name was Joan Carolyn Baird. Sadly, Joan's parents died in a house fire when she was around nine or ten years old. There's a lot of, I believe, mixed opinions about this fire. Any source I have read online says it was a suspicious house fire. However, in your book, you say that according to Alice, who was Joan's auntie from her mother's side, stated that the fire commissioner said that the fire was caused by a penny that had been put in the fuse box, which caused a short circuit, which then led to the house catch the sofa catching fire. Whereas the, the fire chief investigating the fire said that it was caused by a defective cord lamp. Yeah, it was. And yes, there were there were many theories associated with it. I was able to get extremely detailed records with the the help of the local library there and to read through the fire commissioner's report. And in the end, despite all of the suspicions about the fire, the the fire commissioner's view was very clear cut that it was not a suspicious fire. And I think because of what would later on happen to Joan, the fact she would go missing, I think it's maybe easy for the media to add suspicion where there perhaps is none. (laughs) You know, it's something about her life that can be somewhat, I hate to say this word because both her parents died in this fire, but it can be sensationalised because of what would later happen to her when all it was was just a really, really tragic event that unfortunately led to the passing of both of her parents. So after Joan's parents died, she went to live with her maternal aunt, Alice Latrice, and her husband, Frank, and their children. At this point her last name was changed to Natrice. And she I believe she was officially adopted by her auntie and uncle. Is that correct? She was, in about 1940. Yeah, when she was around, she was around 9 or 10 when this fire started, yes. wasn't she? Yeah. There is, I'm going to use the word speculation because it has never been proven in court that this happened. However, there is speculation that Joan was abused by her foster father, her uncle, Frank Natrice. And in your book, you go kind of into context about the type of person that Frank was, which is something that a lot of obviously media outlets don't don't report on. Barely of them even sort of discuss it. They just say it's possible that that she was, you know, but your book really gives context into the house that Joan grew up in. The information that you give about Joan's upbringing 
and the people that she was around and the type of person that Frank was really kind of gives a whole image as to who Joan could have been and how her upbringing could have affected her into her adult life because there's no doubt that it would have, you know, losing your parents at such a, a young age and then going on to experience the abuse that it's speculated that she suffered from and no doubt would have affected her her adult life. Yes, correct. I mean, she was, in my view, a, a, a very strong person. She, she suffered the deaths of her parents, and um, she stated to a number of persons that she had been abused, but never provided details of the abuse. And uh, she told her husband, she told an aunt, she told her, eventually she told her mother, and a variety of people she told a lot of friends when she was going through college. Doesn't seem to be any reason that she would have been lying about it because she never really took any actions based on it. Absolutely not. So I, to, to me, I was inclined to believe her, but the extent of it is not clear. Absolutely. And by no means do I want to insinuate that I believe Joan was lying because I agree with you. I can't see why she would have. But because this never went to court, I'm going to use, you know, allegedly it's been speculated. Correct. And I think the fact that she told people that this had happened but never really went into it is very, very common yes. in people who right. have been through that type of abuse, you know, just letting them know, look, this is what's happened to me, but it's too much of a trigger. I can't go into it. But there's no doubt that yes. that obviously would have affected her into her adult life, even if it wasn't obvious to those around her that it affected her. It's no doubt that it would have in some in some way. After she graduated from high school, Joan went on to study at the Wilson College in Pennsylvania and she got a degree in English in 1952. She then went on to work in around three different publishing houses in New York. She worked her way from being a secretary to a supervisor, then to an editorial assistant. Soon into starting her career in publishing, Joan met Martin Reich and they married at the end of 1955. This is when her name obviously became Joan Reish, which is how we will be referring to her for the rest of the episode. They had two children, Lillian and David. Joan decided to quit her job as a editorial assistant and become a stay-at-home mum, which was a very common decision, you know, at the, at the time. A lot of women chose to quit their job and to become a stay-at-home mum. And by all accounts, from everyone that knew, that knew Joan, she appeared to be very happy with her decision. There's no indication that Joan was unhappy being being a stay-at-home mum or in any way felt anything other than totally fulfilled. Would you agree with that, Stephen? I do. Uh, she was... There's a lot of testimony on, on this from both friends. Uh, she had uh, uh, landlords in Brooklyn that thought that she was uh, very happy. She had her relatives, her aunts. Uh, felt that she enjoyed the the, uh, the marriage and very much enjoyed having children. And all of the neighbors that were in the towns that she lived in, you know, both in Lincoln and in Ridgefield, Connecticut, all were consistent that she was a very considerate, very, um, uh, that she, I think one of the quotes is that she fought nothing other than for her uh, husband and, and, and children. And I think that that was true. I'm pretty sure that she may have had plans to become a teacher at some point in the in the future. And I do think that, as you said, the the, the path that she took to stop working when she was um, when she had the children is is consistent with what a lot of people did. In fact, what my mother and my sister did. 
uh, and then they went back to school afterwards. Oh, excuse me, went back to work. Afterwards. Yeah, even my mom did that. <laughs> you know, it's a very common decision yeah. that people. Yeah. Yeah, very common decision that people make. Joan and Martin moved from Ridgefield, Connecticut to Lincoln and they moved on to Old Bedfield Road, which is where Joan disappeared from in her home on the 24th of October 1961. And the fact that Joan was such a dedicated wife and mother makes her disappearance and the circumstances around it even that much more mysterious I think is that I'm not sure if that would be the right word but she's not we'll get into this more in in the theories by no one's accounts was she considered to be somebody who would voluntarily disappear and certainly not in the way that she did because it's not like she just one day up and left her house and was never seen again. That's that's correct. Um, It it seemed highly unlikely and no one in the family really thought it was likely. So that morning, as I said, on the 24th of October 1961, Martin Reich left for a business trip in New York, which he worked in New York, so this wasn't uncommon at all for him to, to do this. Joan had planned a very regular day. She had taken her daughter to the dentist. She did a couple of errands. She then dropped her son David off at her neighbour Barbara's house. Joan's neighbour Barbara, I would say, and I wonder if you agree, Stephen, was quite possibly one of the most valuable witnesses in her disappearance. Definitely. Because of her involvement in, you know, Joan's day, the day that she disappeared. She certainly knew the most about what happened during the day, and she was, in fact, the first person who discovered that Joan was, in fact, missing. Yeah, and I think the fact that they lived very close to each other, and obviously they knew each other, were were friends, Barbara would have kind of, generally speaking, known Joan's routine. She would have known what was, you know, normal for Joan to do, and perhaps things that were maybe not as usual and even Barbara for the most part of the day until she turned up at Joan's house and saw the blood all over the kitchen believed that Joan was having a very normal day there was nothing I don't think Barbara saw anything particularly out of the ordinary until Lillian came to Barbara's house and alerted her my mum isn't here and reports say that Lillian then said there's red paint all over the kitchen yeah that's correct that's correct she came to Barbara had let Lillian back to her house, uh, to to the Rich house, at about 3.45. And Lillian came back to the Barker house at 4.15 with that news that you just said. I think one detail that I didn't realise until I read your book, I assumed that Lillian had perhaps looked through the window and saw what she believed was paint on the floor. I didn't realise that she had actually gone into the house, gone up the stairs, played with her toys, saw her brother, then went back to to Barbara's house, which, and I'm I'm sure that you say in your book that innocent of a thing that was to do, because, I mean, she was four years old and had no idea of the danger she could have potentially been in. She she was so, I think, well well taken care of that she it was beyond her ken that she might have been at, at risk under the circumstances. But I assume that over a half an hour period, she it must have started getting a little spooky for her. So I think she left the house at one point, walked around the house to see if anything was going on, saw Mrs. Barker returning. Uh, from like a half an hour shopping trip and uh, immediately walked across the street. And that was against her mother's 
um, injunction that she always go across the street with an adult. So she must have been somewhat upset at that point. Absolutely. I can't even imagine. I don't want to speak for Lillian, obviously, but looking back at that situation and realising as an perhaps an adult about that day and knowing I was in the house with my brother, all this blood was in the kitchen. And it's easy when you do things as a child, like you say, you don't you don't think about things like that because because you're innocent. But looking back on it, I can imagine that I said I don't want to speak for Lillian, but that would be quite difficult for her to, you know, to, to think about that. So I can totally understand why her family have chose to be very private about Joan's case. Absolutely. I mean, uh, as traumatic as the, as the day was for uh, for Joan herself, uh, it, it just seems to me that it was an awful lot of trauma uh, for, for Lillian as well. And um, both, you know, seem, uh, of course, we don't know with, with Joan, but Lillian seemed to have handled it uh, very well. Absolutely. Children are quite resilient because they're not fully aware of the circumstance that they perhaps find themselves in. And like you say, because Lillian was very well looked after and, you know, like you say, she, she knew she wasn't, you know, to cross the road and do these things by herself because her, her mum was always there and her mum looked after her very well and was a very devoted mother. She had no reason to think that she would be in danger or that her mum would be. And for a four-year-old to think, like you say, this is getting a bit spooky. I don't know where my mum is. I need to go and find help. You know, it must have been very, very traumatic for her. I would think so. Rewinding slightly, I want to speak a little bit about Joan's day because Joan had, I would say, quite an active day that day. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people saw her. As I said, she went to the dentist with her daughter. She went shopping, put her son down for a nap. And then Lillian played outside with Barbara's son. At around 1.55pm, for reasons that I believe are still unknown, Joan took Lillian and Barbara's son back to Barbara's house without having told her that she had done it. Yes. Obviously, we don't know what happened to Joan. That's the reason we, we are talking today. But do you have any insight, perhaps, or thoughts or theories as to why she perhaps did this? Because this happened within hours of her of her disappearing. Yeah, it, it was it was, you know, fairly close to, to the to the window essentially that where it's about an hour and a half window where her uh, whereabouts are, are not known. It's 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 not entirely clear, as you say, what her motive was. the The only fact that I hang my hat on is that she would put her two year old son David down for a nap at twelve each day and wake him up at two. and th- And she was actually fairly punctual with it, as far as I can tell because she even included in a letter to the family something about she had to stop writing at that point because she had to get David because if she let him sleep longer than two o'clock, he would be he would be upset and then having trouble getting mm-hmm. to bed. So it was about five minutes of two when she started walking back. I can think that she may have wanted, she wouldn't be able to watch uh, Lillian and Douglas, who, who was Mr., Mrs. Barker's son, uh, as well as she might have because she wanted to attend to something with, with David. Uh, it's also possible that she wanted to do a little reading because she was a voracious reader at the time and just wanted to take a, a break. 
The fact that she didn't tell um, Mrs. Barker that she had dropped off the, the, the children is a little surprising. But in retrospect, when you also look at the fact that Mrs. Barker dropped um, Lillian off in her front yard at about quarter of four, simply on the basis of the fact that Mrs. Rich's car was in the driveway. It looks like they had a fairly easygoing relationship and they didn't feel that they had to get the kids to the other person's door necessarily. They felt safe in the neighborhood. Absolutely. That's my conjecture anyways. You hear a lot in cases that happened around this time that there isn't as much, there wasn't as much suspicion back then as there maybe is now. You know, in terms of people, you know, read in several cases, you know, people, it was a neighbourhood where people left the door open, you know, because it was a safe neighbourhood. I believe that where she lived was a fairly well-to-do neighbourhood. Yes, it was. It was. And in fact, the people in Lincoln, which was a a very well-to-do town, took pride in the fact that they didn't lock their doors and, and would kid people who in fact did. Uh, so it people would go away for the weekend and not lock their doors, which is somewhat unheard of nowadays. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, it's a totally different time, isn't it? So around two fifteen, I'm sure it was Barbara that saw Joan coming out of her house holding something red against her abdomen. Left the the two children on the swings in kind of the side backside yard of the butler's house. The children didn't stay there. They went into the house and were in the kitchen with Barbara at about two o'clock. Then Barbara, uh, Joan had brought over Lillian's bicycle with her to the Barker's house. And there was some talk that the two children might use their bicycles. So uh, Barbara put training wheels on her son's bicycle. Then the three of them were in the kitchen at the time, and Barbara was looking out the window, and that's when she saw Joan. And and um, she saw Joan across the street. Now, this is at least 100 yards away. There was foliage falling, but it hadn't completely fallen. There were pine trees also in the way. So she had a view of the top of the driveway and the, the front of Mrs. Uh, uh, Rich's car but didn't have a full view of the the driveway, of the full driveway, or of the front lawn of the Rich house. She didn't see Joan actually coming out of the house, but she saw Joan at the top of the driveway, and she seemed to be moving fairly quickly down the driveway with her arms outstretched. And a short distance away from her outstretched arms was, was something that Barbara said was red. She automatically assumed that it might be that David may have gotten through with his nap, that that Barbara may have taken him outside, and that he was running down towards Bedford, Old Bedford Road, and she was concerned, and she was chasing him. And that's what she was, um, that's what she was concerned about at the time. And one of the children who was with her said something to the effect of, oh, that's probably 
a mom chasing David down the street, which more or less cemented the idea in her uh, mind that that's what she was seeing. And again, because at this point it had still been a very normal day, nothing seemed out of the ordinary about Joan's behaviour, Joan's mood, anything she was doing. There would be no reason to think that this was anything other than, like you say, her chasing her son down the drive or doing any sort of like chore essentially. There was no reason that this, it's only in hindsight that we think, I wonder what she was doing. In, in, in hindsight, there, you can raise a lot of questions about what was going on at the time. It's very hard to pin it down, uh, but I don't think what Barbara thought was unreasonable. Abs- absolutely, absolutely not, because as you know, we've established the day up till this point was a normal day. You know, a, a lot of these stories start with, you know, it, it started off as a normal day. They always do. Yes start off as perfectly normal, you know, suburban days, you know, looking after your kids, doing chores, you know, just just the usual stuff. So there was no reason at this point to think anything was unusual. But this would be the last, at least confirmed, sighting of Joan. Correct. And it was at around 2.15. Yes. So as we have stated already, Barbara, I believe, had to go and do some chores. So she sent Lillian back to the house. Lillian walked in, saw what she thought was, you know, she was four. She saw what she thought was red paint. As we've stated, she went up the stairs, saw her brother, presumably played or did whatever for the next 30 minutes until she became slightly maybe concerned or anxious of, where's my mum? This is unusual. She then went back over to Barbara's house and stated that she saw red paint on the floor. Barbara then came to investigate and then found that it was blood and found quite the scene in Joan's kitchen, of which there are black and white photos available online. And from the photos, you can tell something has happened. Something has gone has gone awry. There's blood all over the floor. There's a table. There's a chair, I believe, overturned. The phone is detached from the wall. There's a waste paper been in the middle of the floor with a beer can in it and or a beer bottle which again wouldn't have been normal for Joan to obviously be be drinking while you know she was looking after her her children so this whole scene was obviously very unusual and and raised a lot of a lot of red flags that that's correct and and it uh, the the kitchen was all of the the blood and there was quite a bit of blood in fact one of the things that i remember as i said when i was 12 years old and heard about the case it was always associated mm-hmm. with blood in the kitchen and so and and the blood kind of started near the telephone that was at the far end of the uh, of the of the kitchen, heading into the hall. Um, there was a hall that then ran to the living room, and the, the 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 blood was particularly high in that corner where the phone was, and then swept out uh, in kind of an arc into the center of the the room. There was also another blood stain near the door that entered from the. Uh, the, the breezeway outside. And um, with that, as you said, the phone was detached from the, from the wall phone, the receiver was detached and then placed uh, and balanced on the side of that wastebasket. 
And the wastebasket had quite a bit of things. And, and in addition to, to, I think there were several beer cans. There were a couple of whiskey, whiskey bottles. There were many bottles of, um, of uh, baby food and, and, uh, and vegetables and, and a variety of things like that. So there was a lot in that basket, which has always raised questions about why there so, was so much in the in the in the bin, but the 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 interesting fact was once you got out of the kitchen, or even on the left side of the kitchen, where the sink, the stove, the refrigerator, and the and the uh, table was where the, the family ate, there were no signs of any violence there. There were no signs of any blood, and there were very few signs of any blood anywhere else in the house at the time. So the, the initial impression as you went into the house was of just a very uh, chaotic scene and a very scary scene. But there was the, the, the interesting thing was there was nothing else in the rest of the house that tended to uh, you know, provide a similar uh, situation. Yeah, absolutely. So it became it was fairly obvious to you know the police and the people who turned up that whatever had happened, had happened in that kitchen. I was going to ask you, Stephen, since there was no, like you say, this this you know crime scene was condensed primarily to the kitchen. Was there a back door in her kitchen that she would have left her house from? Because I don't believe there was any sort of blood trail, maybe through her front door. There, there was. The the police found you know most of the blood was in the kitchen. The police found a few drops by the stairs that went upstairs. There were some blood drops in the hallway at the top of those stairs. A few more, or actually six or seven blood drops in the master bedroom. And one blood drop where uh, David was sleeping. Coming back downstairs, there was actually no back door. There was a, they, right off the kitchen, there was a cellar door. And if you went downstairs there, you could go out through a uh, doors that opened up. Um, and, uh, and they were, as far as I know, unlocked. And, and then there was the, the side entrance or the entrance at the front of the house. But there was no back door in that house. To get to the backyard, you had to walk through the um, kitchen into the garage and out a back door in the garage. It's it's an odd thing for the house, but there was no back door. That's really interesting because it kind of leads me to think, I wonder where she was when the bleeding started. And from what you've described, this is only my personal opinion, but it seems to me that because there was such little blood upstairs, there was blood, but very little, but most of it was in the kitchen, that would lead me to think that it started upstairs. Would you? What are your thoughts on that? It 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 could have in the in the scenario that I thought, but it's it's only one scenario out of many. I thought that perhaps a confrontation could have escalated. That Joan went to the phone at that point, talking to a person who she had let into the house. That then the 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 confrontation took place and the and the assault on her took place right at the phone with someone ripping the phone out of the phone box because they were afraid she was trying to call for help. Uh, and then for her possibly being dragged 
on the floor in the kitchen. Then my scenario is then her and her assailant go upstairs because she wants to check on David, leave some blood there. Perhaps there's a minor confrontation out there where more blood is, is dropped. And then they come back through the house. That's when the effort is made to try to clean up the kitchen blood, which is unsu- totally unsuccessful. And then there is some blood then left out in the, the driveway. I can see, though, the situation that you are talking about where it's possible that the, that the confrontation could have taken place upstairs possibly Joan had gone to check on David or something, confrontation takes place up there, comes back downstairs. But because of the blood, the the telephone, it just looks to me like the initial violence, the initial problem took place in the kitchen, and then the trails upstairs were uh, were secondary to that. As you described that, I can see that and I think with a lot of the evidence in this case or the circumstances surrounding it it's very very open to interpretation which is is, we will get to that more in the theories because there are several theories in in Joan's case some of which I believe for the most part have been basically ruled out like we mentioned earlier that she just up and left and something that I hadn't actually considered until I read your book but I thought was a really good, good point if Joan did decide just to leave her house, how would she know to leave blood spattered the way she did? That's exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I, as, I, as I mentioned to you, I had a FBI, a former F, FBI profiler, help me out on the on the book, and also I had a Los Angeles uh, cold case detective who helped me on some aspects. He was the one who wrote the foreword for the book. Um, you know, they 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 told me that uh, there were certain signs with the, the blood. The fact, as you say, that the the blood was 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 kind of, was kind of smeared in a way that people probably wouldn't have known to do at the time if they were trying to recreate a you know a scene, and also that the the way that it was set up with the waste paper basket sitting there with a phone on it with a table pushed out into the hall and with various other things complicated. It offered too many possibilities as to what might have happened, which would have detracted from someone who was trying to make out a case that she had been assaulted and and, and taken out, out of the house if she wanted to just disappear on her own. It, it, it basically was too elaborate, the site. There were too many things that that indicated potentially that maybe she had just had a, a you know an accident. Maybe um, you know why had somebody then tried to clean up? There were just a lot of things related to the site that made the the those analysts feel that it didn't really look like a site that had been put together by someone who wanted to run away, basically. Absolutely, and like we've said, it was very open to interpretation. And if that's what she wanted to do, like just run away and start a new life, there was a lot easier ways to do that than what Absolutely. she she did. She didn't have, she wouldn't have had to have made this big scene. You know, if she wanted to do that, she could have just done it. Absolutely. She could, you know, another way to do it would have been to drive her car someplace, let the children off with Barbara Barker, 
and then have the event occur someplace a distance from the, you know, from the house and whether she left a bloody scene with her car, but she could just leave the car abandoned. So there were a lot of ways to do it that wouldn't be as traumatic for her children and her and, and her husband. Absolutely. And so to me, anyways, it just doesn't look like a stage uh, scene to me. And in addition to that, the police really found no evidence of a, of a lover, uh, no evidence of, uh, you know, her squirreling away money. She, her purse was missing. All her cash and credit cards were there. There was some asthma medicine that she normally had to take, uh, that uh, apparently was not taken, uh, at the time. So there were a lot of reasons to believe that she had in fact been taken and that she hadn't staged her disappearance. And another thing that occurred to me when I was reading your book, when you spoke about the blood spatter is back then in the 1960s, we know a lot more about forensics now yes. than we do back then. And while even now this scene would be quite elaborate, if you just wanted to go away and start a new life, People back in the 1960s, unless you were in law enforcement or worked for the FBI, you wouldn't know how to do it, you know, let alone, like you say, the trauma this would cause her children and her and her husband. Not a lot was known. You know, DNA wasn't even a really a thing back then. So she wouldn't have physically known how to create this scene, let alone think I'm going to do this in order just to to leave and start and start a new life. So I think for the most part, there are still theories that she, that she did that. And one thing that really gets to me about speculation online was that she'd checked out a number of mystery books yes. in the run up to her disappearance. Yes. And that's been made a big thing of, right. as do I. And if I ever go missing, please phone the police on me. I might not want people to know my what I'm reading necessarily, no. uh, even if I don't disappear. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's correct. Uh, Serene Gerson, who was a local reporter, uh, said that there were 25 books that Joan had taken out, which is fairly extraordinary. She was only in Lincoln for six months. And um, so she read a lot of books. And what's the, the lore has grown that that the books were all related to how to disappear. And in fact, when I went through the list of books, I found only about seven that were arguably related to disappearances. And none of them were really where that was the core of the the book. Uh, It was simply just a tangential uh, aspect of the book. None None of the information in those books really gave you information about how to stage a scene, how to change your life and move to a new place, take care of social security issues, banking issues, and all of those issues, and may, and and keep yourself undercover for what amounts to 60 years now. There was just nothing in those books that did that. And I don't believe the police. I, I believe the police dropped that as a consideration after a few months. Yeah, like you say, there were. It was hardly like she checked out a how-to manual, right. how to how to stage her her disappearance. And I think along with the fire that happened when she was young, this is another part of the case that has been sensationalized. And yes. I think especially now that we live in a culture where you know there's a lot of people that are into into true crime. I think that's perhaps because it's such an interest in people's lives now. They've taken that and thought, oh, Joan must have been really into that as well and she might have been you know there's a lot of people that are interested in 
in true crime. That doesn't mean that just because they, they read mystery books that they're going to stage their own their own disappearance. You know, I just think it's something that has been sensationalised when there was really, really no need for it to be sensationalised. I think that I think that's correct. And um, so I've kind of ruled ruled that out as a as a possibility. And I know that Mark Safarik, who was the FBI uh, profiler, felt that a, a voluntary disappearance was the least likely of the various scenarios in his mind. So I read in a source, and I'll admit, I can't remember where I read this, but maybe you can shed some light on this, Stephen, that when the police turned up to the Reese household that day, is it true that their initial assumption was that they were going to find a woman who had completed suicide? Yeah, that's my understanding. Michael McHugh was the first uh, Lincoln policeman on the scene, and his first thought was that there was a suicide. But when he went through the house and also went outside and looked around, there was no body and there was no weapon. And so um, he began to feel that maybe that wasn't what had happened. And I know that later on, uh, some of the, 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 actually the district attorney went to the house that night, which gives an indication of how important they took the case. Yeah. And the district attorney's judgment that night, at least, was that, um, she had been forcefully taken from the house. So one thing that the police did discover through their investigation was that a car had been seen in Joan's driveway that wasn't her car and wasn't a car that anyone in the neighbourhood recognised. I think I came across different descriptions of this car because I believe many people saw it and eyewitness reports are notorious for being slightly all over the place. Correct. What was the most accurate description that you were able to, from your research, able to find about this car? It, it sounded to me, what the police put in their bulletins that they broadcast around the country was that the car was a 1955 or 1956 Oldsmobile that it was either blue or gray, and that it was dirty and had a sloped back. And um, then there was also some additional information that gave a partial license plate of the of the car. So that was the best information that they had. I think the first report I was able to find of neighbours seeing this car was at around 3.20. Does that add up with your research? It was, yeah, I slightly different, 3, 3.25, but yes, right at that time. And it was a next-door neighbour to the Rishes. It was Virginia Keene, who was uh, probably 13 or 14. She was passing by the house, noticed the car, and it made an impression on her. And it, it's and she said basically that she had seen the car coming from the bus back, which gave a good context for the time that she actually saw it. There were some rumors that, oh, no, she just saw a police car or there was a speed trap or something like that. But in fact, it seems to me that it was pretty clear that she did see a car at, at 325 and that another neighbor, and you may want to get into this, uh, another neighbor then saw the car pulling out around 340. Yeah, I was just about to mention that. Hilda Zelgar, I believe yes. from, from what I read in your book, she remembers because she stopped her car to let him out. Um, sorry, I'm assuming, yeah. I'm assuming it was a male. It could have been a female. That she 
stop the car to let them out of the driveway. And then he then went into the opposite direction from where she was going. That's correct. She was going south towards Route 2A. He was going north to what's called the Hanscom Air Force Base, which is a big facility that was only about a mile away from the Rich House that employed perhaps 10,000 people. And I think obviously you'll have more kind of knowledge of this area than I do. Obviously, I don't even live in the continent, let alone the state. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not an area you'd know of from Scotland. No, no I, I, absolutely not. So, the, the way that his car was driving, I take it that was in the opposite direction to the yes. sightings that have not been confirmed to be Joan, but I believe are highly suspected to be Joan, of a woman kind of walking down the side of the road with blood on her, looking very dishevelled and very confused. Yes, that is correct. She was, they, The car came out of the driveway and headed north towards Hanscom Field. And that was about uh, 340. And so almost an hour before that, at about 245, there was a sighting of a woman wearing clothes that sounded similar to Joan's, the clothes that Joan was wearing, walking on 2A. Now, 2A was a highway that basically intersected with Old uh, Bedford Road. That was the terminus of Old Bedford Road. And 2A ran east to west. And the woman who was uh, driving that car was a Lincoln resident who was driving back east to get home to because her children would be getting out of school. And she, as she passed, she saw a woman who was looked like kind of aimlessly walking down the road in a fairly dangerous position. There was no driveway, uh, excuse me, no sidewalk there. There was very little room and cars could actually, you know, hit her if they weren't paying enough uh, attention. And but that woman never I think her name was Georgia Wright, never saw the the other woman's face or she couldn't confirm that it was it was Joan Rich. But the timing and proximity, she was only about 300 yards or, you know, in that area uh, from the Rich house when she was seen at 2.45. And I'm, I'm right in thinking that this wasn't the only sighting of Joan on this stretch of, of road. Is that correct? You are correct. They, it wasn't on, on Route 2A. That, that was the earliest of the three sightings. It was on Route 2A, which is a just a two-lane kind of secondary highway. The other two sightings were on what was then called Route 128, which is a, one of the biggest highways in, in Massachusetts. The, the, the first sighting with, uh, or the first sighting on 128, which was in fact the second sighting in the sequence, she was seen. That was five mile, five to six miles away from the Rich House. It was at about somewhere between 3:15 and 3:30, as I say, quite a distance away from the from the Rich House. And the woman had actually was in the median strip. Of that highway, so there were two high two lanes of highway traffic to get to that median strip, and then on the other side there were two more lanes, and that traffic was probably heading anywhere between forty and sixty-five miles an hour. Wow! So a woman who was not in you know the best of shape, and that woman walking on the median strip wasn't. Um, it's hard to explain 
how how they could have been there. Um, the woman who was on Route Two and during the first two two A during the first sighting was heading west. The woman was seen at that second sighting five miles away on Route One Twenty Eight, the median strip, was heading north. And then about an hour after that, at four twenty five, uh, another couple of uh, people saw a, a similar woman walking this time south about a mile further north than the second sighting. I think I'm confusing you. At nope. this point. But in this third sighting, she was heading south. So basically you had a woman that was walking in pretty much every direction but east yep. at one time and had crossed a potentially a very busy highway twice. And uh, it's somewhat inexplicable to me how she would have been able to do that. Yeah, I was just about to ask you, because obviously you'll have much better knowledge of this area than I do. So you would know if all of these sightings could have been, first of all, the same person. Second of all, obviously, we don't know if it was if it was Joan. But, you know, is it possible that they were all the same person from the distance of which she was seen at all these different sightings? Or is it thought to me it's. It seemed unlikely that it that it was her each time. Okay. I'm more apt to believe that the sighting at 2:45 on 2A, close to Jones' house, could have been. I'm kind of agnostic on that. The sightings down on 128, uh, to me, are more problematic. They're just very far away. It's unclear how Joan would have got down there. How what she would have been doing in the median strip of the busy one of the busiest highways in Massachusetts, but, uh, you know, walking kind of aimlessly at that point doesn't make sense. There there's a was a large mental hospital, for example, about two miles away on Trapello Road at the time, Metropolitan State Hospital. There were different places where people could have come from. And in fact, a couple of the people who were originally identified as possible suspects turned out to be people that came from the Bedford VA hospital, which was a few miles uh, away as well. So it's it's conceivable that you had a different population that was involved and someone from that population or, you know, who knows where that person came from, but that it likely wasn't Joan. Now, in to argue in favor of it being Joan, the clothes that she had on was similar to the clothes that people thought she was wearing at the time, although she was wearing a scarf and there was a lot of discussion about the fact that she really wore a scarf. And uh, there were also discussions about her bleeding down her leg in the second sighting. No one had seen any blood in the first sighting. And in the third sighting, it was described as dried mud. Uh, on on her leg, so there were different descriptions. There was there were differences in the details, but for the most part, the the reason that I doubt the 128 sightings, it was just very far away, and it's not clear how she got there and why she would have been there. For example, at 4:25, some two hours and ten minutes after she had been seen in her driveway, Barbara Barker. Yeah, it seems like. Because, I mean, she didn't have her car. Her I don't know if I've already mentioned this. Her car remained in her driveway. She didn't take her car. So Correct. you've can't, you've got to factor in that she would have been walking, which is something else I'll admit when I was researching. I sort of assumed that whoever the car in the driveway belonged to, the, the unknown car, 
that they had dropped her off in the middle of nowhere. That is what what I had assumed, but the timings don't add up because that car didn't leave Joan's residence until after the sightings of a woman who, again, we don't know it was Joan. So it's very possible that Joan left her property in, in the car that was seen coming out of her driveway. We, we don't know. But it doesn't add up with my initial thinking that the person whose car was in her driveway drove her somewhere and dumped her on the side of of this of this highway. It doesn't it doesn't add up. No, she, they would have then had to return to the house, I guess, and then be seen backing out of three forty. So you have the situation that she's seen the first time at two forty five. She's seen the second time between three fifteen and and three thirty, and then the car disappears. Uh, or leaves the, the Rish residence at 340. And then finally, there's a third sighting at 425. It's, it's hard to explain logically what, that sequence of events. It seems again bizarre though. That I said we don't know that any of these sightings were, were joined because none of them have been, have been confirmed. However, to me, if one of them at least, was Joan. It seems bizarre to me that she would have left the house before her possible assailant did, or whoever's car that was. That seems bizarre to me that that's how this would have trans... You would have thought that they would have left first, and then her. You have to come up with is she would would have been assaulted. Then she still would have had the wits about her in order to escape from the house. Then she would have had to decide not to stop at Barbara Barker's house, which was right across the street, although a little distance, as I say, 100 yards. Uh, Then she would have been wandering out on a dangerous kind of road for a pedestrian to be walking, not having gotten into the woods to protect herself, not having done anything to protect her children, and simply been wandering along Route 2A. Now, you know, you can come up with scenarios that, well, maybe she has some sort of amnesia, and there have been cases. Uh, You know, I do not deny the, the fact that there have been cases of amnesia and people acting, you know, fairly strangely. But you have a sequence where she has to have the wits to escape from the house and then suddenly wander down along Route 2A and not take steps to protect herself. It seems inconsistent. It's very contradictory. And then a half an hour later, she's found on 128 in the median strip. Yeah. You know, how did she get there? Well, all of those sightings are, again, a little hard to resolve how, how they all happen together. Absolutely. And then when you consider the time between these sightings and the time when the car left, that leaves her possible assailant in her house for quite a yes. considerable, a longer than you'd think an assailant would be in, in her house. Close to an hour. And then obviously we'd said that the scene, someone had obviously tried to clean the blood and was very unsuccessful. Perhaps that's what they were doing. Perhaps it was what she managed to flee and he thought, I'm going to try and cover this What's happened up? It's it's possible, but you know, I, I mean, I would think the scenario would be that if she had escaped, he would try to either one yep. escape or two yep. find her, and uh, that would have been more likely. I, if if anybody made an attempt to clean the house, it was more likely 
known right. to try to minimize the trauma of our family, as far as I can see. There's no real good... A, a, a perpetrator doesn't want to remain exposed for a long period of time. So they are going to want to come in, do something quickly, and get out, and you know try to do it all in 15 minutes if they possibly can. To try to delay that, to try to you know uh, stay in the house and clean up and that sort of thing, where a potential witness is now out on the street and could be calling the cops, just to me doesn't make sense. Absolutely. And I mean, there seems to have only been around five minutes between that car leaving her driveway and Lillian coming back to the house. Yes, correct. It was very close. Which is quite scary to think about, that it was that short a space of time. Very much. Very much. I mean, you know, again, talking about Lillian, I mean, she she was a, a girl that is obviously, I think, was comfortable with her family, comfortable that she was safe and that she could have done this sort of thing, not realizing that there could be, a, a, you know, a danger uh, until she had called for her mother for over half an hour and any child would start getting nervous after that. And mommy still hasn't shown up. Definitely. It's just... Again, it's 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 such a perplexing case and her children being in... I mean, because David was in the house the whole time that whatever happened to Joe happened. Correct. You know, he was upstairs. And then for Lillian to come in five minutes after he or she has left, you know, it's a very scary situation for the children to, to be in. And like you say, very traumatic, but... Because David was upstairs the whole time, it seems that whoever this was and whatever motive they had were only interested in in Joan. Correct. You know, because David was in the house the whole time and it's not a situation you ever want to think about. But God forbid, had he wanted to harm her children, he he could have done that. Absolutely. Or she, sorry, could have done that. And it's an awful thing to think about. But it seems that the motive for this was solely directed at Joan. And yet at the same time, exactly, I agree with you. And and the, at the same time, there's no record in the, um, in, the, in the lab reports, for example, of finding any indication of a sexual attack. There's no evidence of any sort of theft. There's no evidence of any harm to the children. So the motive for the person being there you know, is is a question. Could they want to take her out of the house and perhaps, you know, do something terrible someplace else? It's conceivable, but then why be in the house for, you know, a period of time and maybe, you know, uh, let her escape? So to me, and, and there was also a risk taking her out of the house because, again, that increased the amount of time when you're exposed. And there have been several cases where women have simply been able to get out of the car and run away. So why the, the, the fact that the perpetrator took Joan out of the house was the thing that confounded the state police the most. They had never had a case where that had happened. In nearly all other cases, the woman had been found attacked in the, in the house. So, you know, again, that's, that's more, more perplexity, but it's, it's, uh, it is a complicated case. It really is. Definitely, which is why, you know, it's still spoken about to this, you know, to this day. There's a lot of, you know, forums online about her case. Um, My podcast episode is one of many about 
about Jones about Jones' case. As far in in the true crime community online, it's a very popular case. It is because of details like this. Because there are a lot of cases from fifty, sixty years ago that are unsolved and get nowhere near the amount of attention that Jones does. And while it's you know it's a shame. I wish all cases could get as much attention and have the likelihood of being solved. I think the reason why Jones did get so much coverage, you know, at the time and now online, is because of how perplexing her case is. She, it is. It, 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 it's a perplexing case. I, I mean, I also think that if you if you read the, the you know the, the facts and her background um, carefully. She's also a pretty impressive woman, I think. I mean, given what she she went through, and then you know she was trying to mediate disputes within the within the family. She was known as someone who went out of her way to help other people. There were just a lot of things that were kind and nice about her that, um, to me, are you know kind of compelling. And another reason that I felt you know it ought to be written about. Because even if she's been gone this long, she deserves to have, you know, kind of a resolution in case if it's at all possible. Absolutely. And that's why reading your book was so interesting, because it gave a lot of background, like you say, to who Joan was as a person. You know, when I'm covering stories like these, I really do try to focus on the human aspect of these aren't right. just these aren't right. just creepy stories. This is someone's real life. This isn't fiction and you know you went into a lot of detail in your book about you know who Joan was and like I said earlier the sort like her childhood and the situations that she grew up in and you can see how that would have formed her as a person right you know right. which is you know information that you can't always get from reading a forum online you know no you can't you can't and and you know and she she had to deal with a lot of trauma and she could have gone, you know, she could have had substance abuse problems and things like that. And she never did. Her boss at Harcourt Grace, one of the music publishers in New York, thought so much of her. I mean, he said that he had never met anybody as, quote, normal as as, as Joan was and so good for dealing with, you know, subordinates and, and, and uh, getting things done that he actually took her when he moved to another publishing company and she went with him to that publishing company and he was, you know, he praised her quite a bit. So she was a woman who uh, was equally uh, adept at handling, you know, family issues and, you know, business issues and that sort of thing. And given the trauma that she had had uh, initially, she had just had a strong character. She really did. Definitely. Very, very headstrong and, you know, it's it would it's it's so tragic that it's this context in which we're talking about Joan, you know. It would be great to I think that a lot when I'm covering these cases, I, I'm so sad that it's because of the awful thing that happens to them as to why I'm talking about them. You right. know, I would much rather be talking about all the amazing things that they went on to achieve. You know, you said she wanted to be a teacher, the impact she could have made on her students lives or you know just just anything other than why I'm talking about her and it's right. a shame Correct. because she was so young she was I mean just 30 31 when she right when she went missing and she had her I mean that's not much older than I am now right 
Right. And she could have gone on to do so much in her life, but unfortunately, we're never going to know. We don't even know why she was she was taken when she was, let alone what she could have gone on to do had the terrible circumstances on the 24th of October 1960 had they not happened. Yes, correct. You know? Yeah, I agree. One thing that has perplexed me slightly is all these sightings on these busy stretches of road of a woman, or maybe multiple women, looking dishevelled, blood on them, mud on them. Why no one stopped to help them? I agree. I mean, you, you know, if you're traveling sometimes on a highway at high speed, the, the tendency is that you don't want to stop. Yeah. You know, it's, it's difficult to stop. It would Absolutely. Want, for example, to stop for a person in the median lane, because I don't know how much room you had from the, you know, from the passing lane on the highway. To yeah. Do and on Route 2A, at the point she was seen, that was a very narrow route. So, I mean, given people the doubt, I would say that it was something that you can understand. It's, you know, it's kind of human. But at the same time, to think of how many people passed her by, particularly on 128. I mean, as I say, that, that had traffic, maybe 40,000 cars, uh, where Route 2A maybe had 5,000 cars a, a day. That was a lot of cars. There was probably police cars. There were people around. And, you know, the, the thing is, it, this is a little bit like some other cases you've heard of, the Kitty Genovese case in New York yep. in 1963. If enough people see something, they think that somebody else is going to be the one that's going to stop. Or the bypass sort of things, yeah. That's going to make the call. And that I... You know, that may have, in fact, happened. You would only hope yourself that at the very least you'd make a phone call and, and you know, call the cops if you didn't stop stop for the woman. And I think that, you know, to me anyways, there would have been ways of getting over into the breakdown lane or something like that to try to help somebody who looked like they were staggering around and had, according to one witness, had blood coming down her legs. I mean, how much more do you need? As, I know. As De- no, def- definitely. That's a part that's always kind of perplexed me. Um, as I was researching this, I was kind of wondering, the sightings of the this woman or women, did those witnesses who saw them phone them into the police and then when the police heard about Joan's disappearance, connected them? Or did these witnesses only come forward when they heard about Joan's disappearance? That wasn't very clear as I was researching. I, be- I believe it was the latter. I believe that there weren't calls made that day. There were calls made after the media reports of her disappearance a few days later. Yeah. And again, this is a world before mobiles or cell phones, you know, well before then. So it's not as easy just to put your phone on hands free and say, you know, maybe check out this woman you would have to wait until you either got to like an emergency phone or back home but like you say because these were so busy it's not hard to believe because like you say about the kitty genevieve case which subsequently i'm currently studying criminology at university and we've learned i knew about that case before i started studying but that case is actually taught as part of my degree about you know the by the bystander effect and it's just, I don't mean this in a positive way, but it is incredible that, like you say, that many cars could be on the highway and not one of them, when they got home, thought, you know what, I'm going to phone just yeah. to make sure that they are yeah. that they are okay. It's an, The bystander effect is, 
like I say, I don't mean to use the word incredible in a positive way, but but there's I can't think of another word, another word for yeah. it really. And it seems no, like that true. really did did happen in in Joan's case as well. Even though, regardless if these if this woman or women, if any of them were Joan, regardless of that, this was clearly a woman in need of assistance. Absolutely. Of some description, whether that be in need of medical attention, perhaps mental health attention, which I, I do appreciate wouldn't have been as accessible back in 1960. But, you know, she was clearly in need of of help and that no one, I, I find it really, really sad. And while we said earlier this happened in a different time, as far as that goes, I don't think we do. <laughs> and the only thing different is it might be a bit easier now because we've got mobile phones, but the right. same thing, I'm, I'm sad to say, but that could happen again. Technology changes, but human nature doesn't. Absolutely. Well. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, people are more, you know, like, well, I won't phone for help, but I'm going to take a video and put it on Facebook. Like, right. who is that? While it gets public attention, who are you helping <laughs> by, by doing that? Who, who are you? Your time probably is spent phoning someone, you know? So I agree with you entirely. Yeah, I just thought it was, I just kind of wanted to touch on that before we get into the theories, because sure. I, I think that's a really sad part of this case as to whether or not that woman or women were Joan that that happened and people only, as it was an afterthought to phone the police, not... Right, and it, and even if it even if it wasn't Joan, you don't know what happened to that person. You, you I know, what. absolutely. Yeah. And clearly, I very much doubt that, say, this woman or women did get help that surely someone would have been like oh actually that was me you know right. that was someone that i know she's fine but that seems to given we've had no follow-up from that that doesn't seem to have happened where correct not to the best of my knowledge no you said earlier that obviously joan's case was in newspapers and stuff the sightings on the highway i take it they were included in that so anyone who knew the fate of this woman or women could have said to the police actually I know them that was me I'm fine yes that was in the that was in in the newspapers and it was also actually in the uh, in the bulletins that the police sent out all three of the sightings were in the, at least it was in the February 62 bulletin I'm not sure if it was in the uh, November 61 bulletin I hope that whatever happened to you know that women or women that they were that they were okay whether that was Joan or Joan or not, because I think that's a really sad part about about this case. Now, that is there anything else about the investigation into Joan's disappearance that we haven't discussed that you want to mention before we go into the theories? Too much. I mean, I, I think on the whole, just to, to talk generally, the investigation was very detailed. Um, you know, I can't fault the police. They they reviewed somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 fingerprints. They um, talked to thousands of witnesses. They had the FBI involved, although the, the FBI didn't take uh, uh, jurisdiction over the case uh, because they weren't sure it was a kidnapping. And um, the, but the state police, I think, you know, really uh, looked at a lot of different avenues uh, and talked to a, a lot of people. So I really think on the whole, the the investigation was done thoroughly and the searches were very thorough. 
there were a couple low things that I thought were a little perplexing, I guess. The the forensic investigation took place. The 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 house had already had people in it before the forensic investigation was attempted. Those people all said that they made efforts not to interfere in the crime scene. We know that a table that was sitting in the hallway before the the uh, cellar door was moved, and possibly one bottle uh, in the in the basket was was touched. Beyond that, we don't know that there was any problems with the with the, the site. But nevertheless, the the investigators were given from about either six or seven o'clock to about ten o'clock at night to do their investigation with nobody in the house. So that was a fair amount of time. But what I was really surprised with at the time was, one, the police allowed the Rishes to clean up the kitchen within 24 hours of the, the crime. I would have thought that, you know, in today's day and age, they would have kept this, the, the site open for additional forensic investigation. So that I thought was a little uh, a, a little strange. And in fact, the police came back months later to look at utensils and other things that may not have been used. But by that time, you know, there wasn't much chance they were going to find anything. So I thought that there were some problems with the way they did the, the, the forensics. I also was a little surprised at how the investigation petered out in 1963 there were and we may possibly get into it there were there were cases of inconclusive lie detector tests that weren't followed up on there were some uh, witnesses who were unavailable who weren't found and then later uh, in, in investigated so I would have to say that there were at least a couple of points in the investigation that you wish the police had, had gone a little bit further. But it, but again, saying that, this was a case that was given a lot of attention by the police. As I say, the, the district attorney from Middlesex was there that night and directed. In, in Massachusetts, all, all criminal or all uh, homicide investigations outside of some of the bigger towns are managed by the district attorneys. And they're and managed in conjunction with state police who are assigned to those district attorneys. So, um, you know, again, I think that that they did as good a job at the time. You wish that maybe they had kept some samples of blood and tissue and the like to, uh, so that they could have used it for DNA testing, because the same office, the Middlesex um, District Court, uh, excuse me, District Attorney's Office just solved the case of a Harvard student uh, who was killed in 1969 has been the subject of several books. Uh, and, and that case was only eight years later. So, I mean, it is possible for them to, to, to solve cases like that if they have sufficient uh, evidence available. Absolutely. And you hear about it a lot now as well with genetic genealogy and stuff about yes. killers being found, you know, decades later. You know, so it absolutely is possible which i think is amazing because i think it's given so much hope to yes. families to police that these cases will be that they will be solved right. is there i know that there was a, a thumbprint on the wall near where the phone was that didn't match jones 
because I'm sure yes. I read in my because I wondered how would they have Joan's fingerprints, but I'm sure that I read that it was part of like an assignment at school that her fingerprints. Am I right in thinking that the Lindbergh baby kidnapping in 1931 yep. in New Jersey caused, as I understand it, New York and New Jersey to start fingerprinting children, you know, in elementary school. And nobody knew, knew seemed to know that in, in Massachusetts anyways, until one of Joan's uh, siblings basically said, well, her prints may be, you know, still in the school. And they were. Mm-hmm. So they were able to get Joan, but not until about four or five months into the investigation right. that they have Joan's to eliminate. But yes, they were. And, and in fact, the fingerprints became the main source of ruling out suspects. State police sergeant... Uh, by the name of Desmond, who did the fingerprint work. And he found there was a palm print and a fingerprint on the wall, right at the corner where the phone was on the wall. Mm -hmm. And then there was a print, I think, either on the receiver or on the phone that couldn't be excluded on the basis that it had come from the Rich family. And uh, then when they had Jones prints, they could rule out the possibility that they, they were hers. So they were basically three prints. And that was used in large part to eliminate, you know, potential suspects. And shows you now with DNA and some of the, the techniques that they have, forensic analysis, uh, just how far advanced beyond fingerprints they, they were, because really that was the main thing they had to work with. And in the end, it just wasn't sufficient for their purposes. But but they did exclude thousands of potential suspects on the basis of those fingerprints. The general consensus, I believe, is that these prints got there from whoever took the phone off the wall. That's That would be my supposition. Yeah. And I think I think that's reasonable, yeah. Yeah, another detail, as I said, I think this episode will make a lot more sense if you have listened to the previous episode. However, I don't think we've mentioned at this point that the the phone book in Joan's house was open at the emergency services pages because 911 wasn't in operation back then. I just wanted to kind of make, just to put the phone being grabbed off the wall into more context, because again, from that, the logical explanation is Joan was trying to phone 911. The person there didn't want her to do that, rip the phone off off the wall, would probably be the most likely explanation for that. And and at the time, I think you had to call the, 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 the number for the Lincoln police to get them. There was no 911, as you, as you said. So if she was trying to call, she would have had to call that long, longer number. And, and I mean, the interesting point is, I think it was that Kitty Genovese case that we mentioned again in New York. It was throughout the 60s that the uh, the momentum went forward to get the 911 system in place, I believe. You know, it's just another reminder of how different a time it was. Know, this this was. The fact that 911 wasn't in place, you know, probably wouldn't have made much of a different. Maybe it would have sped things up slightly because she wouldn't have had to have gone to the phone book, you right. know, gone gone to gone to the number. She would be able to, to pick it up and phone 911. But again, because the person ripped the phone off the wall, she may not have had the chance to, to do that anyway. It's just a reminder of what a different time that we live in because 911 or 999 for us, it's something we totally take for granted. Yes. We don't we don't even think about it. I don't even know when it was when nine 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 became a thing in, in the UK. I've honestly have got no idea. You know, that's how much we all sort of take 
take it for for granted. And to be honest, as we should, you know, like if you have an emergency, you should be able to phone for immediate assistance. Absolutely. Now, this this was, yeah, it's it's difficult to know. I know that what happened was the, there was a table under the phone and the table had the telephone book on it. It also had a roll of art paper that looks like in, in the pictures, like it's a roll of paper towels, but it's actually for artwork. And there were also some books and other things. That table must have gotten thrown around and a lot of those things fell off of it yeah. and were in various places in the hallway and in the in the kitchen uh, later on. And then the, the table was then thrown out into the hall in front of the, the cellar door. And um, it's unclear what was going on there. Possibly Joan could have pulled the table in front of her while she was trying to make the phone call and somebody was yanking that away. It's, 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 it's not clear. So it's not entirely clear whether she was actually looking for the number or whether that just was the page that the telephone book uh, came to when it landed. Yeah, could just be total coincidence that it just so happened to to open on on that page. And like you say, there's so many things that you know, like you say, the reason we're talking today is because we don't know, you know, what happened. So a lot of, and I think you know, quite important to point out now because we're about to get into you know the, the theories that it is all speculation. You know, because we don't know for sure what happened on that day. And like we've said, so much of the evidence is up for debate and open to, to interpretation. So theories in this case are endless, really. We've already spoken about the fact that she could have got up and left her life. And that, like we've said, that is the least convincing theory and the one that has pretty much been ruled out by most people. And I think we've kind of spoke about it enough that we know it's highly unlikely that that is that that is what happened the second theory that i've got here is that joan was involved in some sort of accident within the home hit her head perhaps stumbled away from from her home and perhaps died of her injuries or stumbled into a construction site that was off of route i believe it was route 128 yes that was the big highway right yeah and that she was perhaps accidentally buried there or that she um, died as a result of of her injuries. The and and that's you know possible as a scenario. I you know I kind of rate that in kind of the middle of the possibilities. Uh, certainly a hemorrhage or some sort of a fall. I mean, a, a kitchen or bathroom is usually where accidents take place. The amount of blood was estimated to be less than you know or less than a pint of, of blood. And so that's equally consistent with a, with a hemorrhage or, or, or a, a problem like that. And the, um, there was no real clear sign of violence at the, at, the, at the site. I mean, there's the ripped phone and there's the table thrown, thrown over, but people can explain that or attempt to explain it by saying that she was in the throes of a, of a, a medical problem or accident reaction to an accident and and she caused the the issues her, herself all of the blood as i mentioned are on as you look through those photographs anyways that the police took 
on the right side of the uh, kitchen, which was the side that the phone was on. One thing that I noticed there is that almost all of the work in the kitchen would have been done on the left side because the stove was over there, the sink was over there, the refrigerator was over there, and the kitchen table. There would be no reason, for example, you'd be using a stepladder or anything like that to get up for anything because there's no cupboards or anything like that on that side. So just as a, as a matter of probabilities, it seems odder that the accident would have taken place on, on that side of the house uh, than, than not. And probably the biggest arguments against the, um, <clears throat> the accident or, or the medical emergencies in my mind is um, that um, the phone is pulled off the hook again again or pulled pulled out of the box again you can explain that that somehow she fell and and dragged it down but that's not quite as believable as someone yanking it away from her in my estimation and in, in, in anyways if she had an accident and was 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 hurting uh, why take make an attempt to clean up the floor absolutely yeah that is probably going to be the last thing on your mind if you've just had an accident absolutely how is housekeeping yeah and why not you know why not just go across the street to uh barbara barker who already has one of your children there to tell her please take care of my other child can you arrange to get me an ambulance or something like that that's simply a lot easier than wandering off onto route 2a uh, and with no, you know, they, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the hospital in Concord, she was headed for the Concord line. She was headed west towards Concord. Emerson is kind of on the other side of, on the western side of Concord. So th- there was no way she was going to get to, you know, a hospital walking that way. It just, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that that's what, uh, that was, what was going on and and there were no you know it doesn't explain the fingerprints um they it also uh, they 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 got in contact with hundreds of hospitals in the end rest homes doctors offices uh and the and the like and there was no um she was never found at any of those most of them responded to the inquiries and and then she was never she was never found there. She um, had no medical history where you would expect a problem. I mean, she's 31 years old. Anybody can have a problem at any time. But she certainly wasn't someone who would you would predict it as being likely to have, you know, an accident or, or a, a, a medical problem. So it's, it's, it's unclear to me. It is a possibility, it seems to me, for very, you know, the reasons I mentioned at the start. But if I had to to quote the odds on it, I would say there are other things that, in my mind, are more likely than an accident or medical emergency. Absolutely, because like you say, there's no risk, obvious risk factor as to why that would have happened. Um, like you say, there's a lot of things it doesn't explain. There's also, you'd think if she had fallen and hit her head, that there would be an obvious like place where there'd be like a point of impact. Yes. Like say Correct. say she had fallen in the shower, there would be like quite a concentrated amount of blood in her shower or bath where you could be like, right, that's where she hit her head. Right. But there there isn't. And even the blood in the kitchen, 
it's hard to tell how it originated because it's smeared around, but it doesn't seem to be concentrated in one place, like on her stove or on a countertop or, or, or anything. So that does seem really quite unlikely. Like you say, not totally out of the realms of possibility, but very, very unlikely. And and, and you know, and then why is there blood on the the rear bumper of the car? Why you know that sort yeah. of thing? Or not the rear bumper on on the rear trunk hood, as we call it in America, uh, boot hood, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah, we call we call it the boot. Yeah. And why wouldn't there be blood further down the road? Why couldn't the 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 uh, uh, bloodhounds have found uh, a trail of her walking off, uh, which they didn't. Uh, none of that seems to be consistent with, you know, an accident or a medical problem. Now, I also don't understand how, you know, if, if she got somebody to help her out or she found a good Samaritan, why, why would a good Samaritan, if she happened to, you know, die in the car because of her injury, why would the first thing you'd be doing is, oh, I got to hide this problem and then find a place yeah. isolated enough where you can bury her so, such that she's not found for 60 years. I mean, you know, I know. it doesn't make sense. And if, if a person's a good Samaritan in the be- beginning, you would have thought that they would just basically take her to the to the hospital and have it, you know, handled the way it normally would be handled. Yeah, and not rip the phone off the box. Right, right. You know? <laughs> because that would, be, that would be the fairly obvious way right. to... To initially get help right. is, I need it. if you if you can't for whatever reason lift Joan or get her to your car, I'm going to phone someone to help me. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So it just absolutely the theory that she had that it was an accident doesn't make a lot of sense. The next theory I want to discuss is one that I did state in my episode that I thought was slightly the most plausible in my mind when I first read about the case, and it sort of ties into this, is that Joan had perhaps died from a botched abortion. Joan's case took place over 10 years before the Roe v. Wade decision that legalised abortion. So back then, if women did want to end in pregnancy, they would either not be able to or be forced to hire a backstreet abortionist, which was very illegal and very, very dangerous and for obvious reasons would have quite a high a high fatality rate. And the reason I thought that this was slightly most plausible is because in my mind, when I was looking into Joan's case, not it ticks every box, but when you're looking into these cases, you want to think, look at all the evidence and find something that all the evidence could point to, yes. you know? And in my mind, when I was researching this case, you know, it did, you know, in my head, the car belonged to the abortionist slash doctor. Yes. They came in, performed the procedure. That was why she took Douglas and Lillian to Barbara's because she didn't want them to see. She knew David was too young to understand and he was in a different room. The procedure was performed. Something went wrong. He was afraid of the, he or she was afraid of the potential consequences, ripped the phone off the wall and Joan Joan died as a as a result of of this. I know that from your book and from the initial message that you sent me that that's not a theory that you think is is plausible. Do you want to kind of go into your thoughts about that theory? Yeah, and, and I mean, I can see the, the the reason it does explain a lot of things. So 
I can I can see why it's uh, you know it's it it's it's considered a, a possibility. What tended to to move me away from it a little you know a, a little bit was Joan's personality. Mm-hmm. Probably, I mean, she, it sounded like she got along pretty well with Marvin, and they had a lot of discussions, according to their relatives. And they were very, you know, good discussions. They were used to arguing points of politics and religion and a variety of other things and keeping their cool and just, you know, arguing all points. So it seems to me that Joan keeping something like this secret and doing something on her own hook wasn't necessarily consistent with her personality. In, in, in addition, she was, in, in my view, fairly conservative. Both, both of them were in the sense that, not conservative in the political sense, but in the, you know, in the sense that they didn't jump out to do things. It, it, to, to do things like a, in a backstreet abortion without safety procedures in her house where her children would be during the afternoon when any of the neighbors could show up just seems to me unusual. And despite the fact that it was an illegal procedure in America, it was illegal in the sense often laws are, which is that the people can, that can afford to find a way around it are able to do it. It's only the people that can't afford a way around it that have their that have the problems, and so I think that a lot of the cases, of the you know the backstreet abortions and all of the terrible things that happened uh, prior to Roe v. Wade, related to poorer people. Martin was making you know about fifteen thousand dollars a year, so if if you adjust for inflation, that's somewhere up in around one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. So that's not something where you can throw around a lot of money. But, you know, if it means saving your life and being around as a mother for your kids, I think you'd probably spend it. And in in addition, and to a more fundamental point, there really never was conclusively shown that Joan was was pregnant, nor was it ever conclusively shown that she wouldn't want a third child. In fact, Barbara, Barbara Barker seemed to think that she would be happy with the child. And Martin, her husband, also thought it. So um, and, you know, in terms of her having desires in the future to become a teacher or whatever or a writer or whatever she wanted to be, it would have, you know, kind of delayed things two years. And, uh, you know, because Lillian was born in 57, David in 59 and a new baby would have been in 61. So it wouldn't be like, you know, a, a lot more delay. And there were, you know, she grew up in a family, in the step family that had five kids. The Barbara Bar- Barker across the street had three kids. So it wasn't like it was outlandish uh, in her experience yeah. to have that many kids. So on the whole, I tend to discount it. Uh, I often also wonder on the side why, why there'd be so much blood in the kitchen and not up in a bedroom or something like that. Where, yeah. where you would think they'd do it. Because if they did it on the floor of a kitchen in, you know, with, with the son upstairs, the daughter coming home, potentially coming home at any time, and a neighbor or something like that would stop by it, just that beggars the imagination. Absolutely. There's, as I say, there's, there's, there is a lot of the physical evidence and the circumstantial evidence that perhaps points to it. But like you say, 
Joan's personality, perhaps it doesn't. But I think it's also important to point out that you, you never know what's going on behind Absolutely. behind closed doors. Correct. One film, one film that I watched that really reminded me of Joan's case because of this theory. It's called Revolutionary Road. I've heard, I've heard about. It. Yes. A very, I don't want to give the plot away, but a very similar thing happens in that in that film. And, you know, the, the film kind of gives you an insight into a person's marriage because you, you never know what's no, going on and, you know, at, behind closed doors. And while Martin can, could say, we would have been happy with a third child, with, with all due respect, it was Joan that was staying at home. Yes with the children and while it might have came across to lots of people that she was fine and coping you never a lot of people tend to hide things like that and I'm not going as far as to say that she might have had postnatal depression because there's no evidence of that but that that's an extreme but a lot of people even if they do have you know postnatal depression or something like that are quite good at at hiding it you know so it is it is quite inconsistent with her her personality as as we know it but again, you know, it, it, it's hard because equal amount of things that point with her personality to it could also point again. Do you know what I mean? And because obviously a lot of the people who knew Joan have sadly either died or are very elderly now, it's kind of hard to kind of, we, we, we don't know her. And it's a lot of people that did aren't able to kind of give us their, their account now, nowadays. So it's a very, in my head, it was the theory that made the most sense while I thought sure. of it. But again, it's it's very hard because, you know, it is such kind of an, an older case. Like you sweet, we know a lot about Joan as a person, how strong-willed she was and, you know, and how, how amazing she was and what a good mother and, and wife she was. But as far as anything mentally going on, we can't. There's not a lot that we can speculate kind of about that, and I think it would be unfair to. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, 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 you cannot rule this out. I, I, again, I would put this in the kind of middle category of, 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 of probabilities. You know, I, I start from the simple point that we don't know if she was pregnant. We don't know if she uh, uh, would have wanted a, a third child. So there's a lot of questions before you even get to the issue of, you know, of, of an abortion. But I do see, you know, as I said at the, at the start, there, there there have been cases of this. There was the Edith Green case in the 1920s, which was very big in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, and, and any, anything is possible because you don't know what's going on in, inside, a, 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 you know, another house. I just find it uh, less of a possibility than, or of a probability than I do other potential things that may have happened. Going off from that, what we are then left with is that she was a victim of, of foul play, that she was attacked, perhaps died as a result of her injuries, was murdered, or kind of going off to a theory we spoke about before that maybe she wandered in after she was attacked, wandered into the construction site, either died of her injuries there or was perhaps accidentally buried or came to some other fate in the construction site that was beside Route 128. You've, You've mentioned throughout the episode that, you know, a lot of suspects were, you know, their, their fingerprints were compared to the one found within her house. As I was researching, there was very little online 
about concrete suspects. It was all, was she having an affair? Was this, was that? And there's no evidence to say that she was having an, an affair or anything. No. But there was no, no, there was no evidence to, to suggest that. And this, to me, doesn't appear to be a crime. It doesn't look to me like a crime of passion. I mean, I'm, I'm by far no, no expert. However, like you say, the person, it looked like whoever, you know, if she was a victim of foul play, it seems that they were trying to get her out the house. If this was a crime of passion and you're in the heat of the moment, this sounds, this is going to sound awful to say, but surely would you not just harm her there? Yes, I, I think that would be the case. And you would see probably a lot more blood and a lot more signs of violence because often those are cases where there's multiple stab wounds or multiple shots or where, you know, multiple blows to the head. And, and here it seemed to be as, as chaotic as the scene looked like as you walked into it, it still actually seemed kind of controlled. It doesn't seem to me like it would have been a professional killing either. Not that there'd be any real reason. Joan wasn't caught up in a big conspiracy. Right. You know, her husband didn't have a job where you'd think that, because he worked in publishing as well, I believe, or worked for a paper company. Is that correct? He worked for a paper company. Yeah, so they, they don't really, people who work for paper companies don't tend to be, you know, on a hitman's agenda, really, you know. Not <laughs> usual. They, they, it's, a, it's a fairly, Again, it's you, a, never you know, know. As far, no, you, 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 you never know. But um, as far as, far as you know, motives go, you can't imagine that she would have, you know, someone would have, you know, paid to, you know, for someone to kill her. And again, right. Because of the amount of sightings of Joan that was seen, the car being seen in the driveway, the fact that the cleanup was so awful, you know, surely like a hitman would know how to clean up a scene a lot better than this person clearly did. A hitman would have been in and out of that house in 10 minutes. We'd have like shot her and gone. Yes, and just left. There, there's, there's very kind of, I hate to kind of put it this way, but kind of more, kind of quicker ways yes. of, of doing it than this seemed. This seemed to be something that was quite Absolutely. prolonged. So yeah, I think that's fairly out of the question as well. You've mentioned throughout the episode about people's finger fingerprints being compared to the one found on the wall. And as I said before, I've never been able to find kind of names of suspects or how much, obviously, like I don't really necessarily want to put people's names out there, especially if, you know, they, they didn't do it. But what suspects, how much do you know about the suspects they were able to to locate? What kind of lines of inquiry did, did, did police follow that led them to finding people to compare the fingerprints to? Well, they, they, <clears throat> they canvassed the neighbourhood first. That's one of the first things that they did. And they came up with uh, some burglaries that had taken place. They had identified some burglars that were there. There were questions about you know, peeping toms and the like. Was anybody camped out in the woods, maybe maintaining some sort of surveillance or something like that? So they looked into that. They looked into a lot of people who, they looked in over 100 people who had basically, during the six months that, that Joan was on the street, had been to her house or had provided services and the, and the, and the like. So part of, and they, they went out and they talked to about over 700 sex offenders. They did, as I say, the, the fingerprint analysis on neighbors, relatives, servicemen at Hanscom Field and a variety of things like that. So what, what, they, what they netted out of it was talking to some of the neighbors, for example, they found that the house on actually all of Old Bedford Road, 
had been become part of the Minuteman historical uh, uh, park, and those houses were going to eventually be sold to the federal government uh, for the park. And and actually, Joan and uh, Joan and Martin actually bought the house, knowing that that was a possibility which makes me think that they bought the house probably as kind of a starter house and then we're going to move up from, from, from there. But um, so they had people involved with the federal government, the park service who were talking to people in the, in the area to see if they wanted to sell the house to get appraisals, to arrange for a sale. And one of the neighbors down the, the street, I think Jane Butler and her husband, William decided that they were going to sell the house. And so that was going on, and one of the people who was identified in that as an agent of the park for that purpose was considered to be someone who f- the women on the street didn't feel entirely comfortable with, and who, uh, in the one woman said, had overstayed his welcome when he was visiting. So he was looked at fairly seriously, and he was basically cleared. When his boss basically told uh, told the police that the man had been in Salem, Massachusetts, with him uh, for a meeting and then a lunch that ended about two o'clock, that the man then drove back to the Lincoln area, and then he got another alibi from somebody he was involved in discussing an appraisal of a of a home uh, in the, in the area. So he basically was kind of clean, cleared on the basis that he had no opportunity. And then another, I'm just giving you some examples. Another example would be Joan took her car sometimes to a gas station that was in Concord, just a short distance away from their house. And, and that individual who owned the gas station was away from the gas station on the day that, that Joan went missing. He basically said, that he had taken his car, gone and gone to a restaurant that was nearby in Concord, got a beer there, and then continued off to a, uh, a marine equipment company that uh, he was looking for some uh, an outboard motor for, for a boat. His subordinate that worked there said that he didn't remember his boss actually turning left on two way to go to that restaurant. He remembered him turning right which would have been in Joan's direction. And there were some questions about the timing of when he left. So that that raised the possibility that maybe he could have been in the area and and decided he was going to uh, assault Joan. But he he also, based on the time he got to the the Marine Equipment Store and and that sort of thing, he was basically um, exonerated. Uh, There was a waitress at that restaurant. She was new there, so she didn't remember him. So that continued the the questioning. But in the end, the police uh, cleared him as as well. And, um, you know, there there were people they they went through records at the at the the house and came across a name of a man. And uh, they started making inquiries of him as to why his name appeared on on a list of phone calls. And um, it turned and he didn't know at first and they had to do some investigating. And then he turned out that he had installed, I think, a heater in the same house. But for the prior owners, the Wilkies, who owned the house before the Rishes owned the house. 
Right. So they basically went through, and you know, you multiply that by a hundred, and they went through a number of, of of people. They talked to people who made sales calls on, or even magazine salesmen from Ohio and New Jersey, and uh, they they were pretty comprehensive. And the the provost marshal up in in uh, the military police up at uh, uh, Hanscom Field questioned everybody who was off the base during that afternoon and found out where they were and confirmed that they hadn't been in, 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 in the area. So there were, there were a lot of different things, uh, and a lot of people that they looked at. They also checked against the fingerprints on all of these people and found that the, the fingerprints didn't match. So um, for the first two or three months, it was that kind of work that they were doing to sort through tips and things that people had said in the neighborhood and what relatives were saying and the like. Yeah. It does really seem like they did their they really did their due diligence. And I had actually heard that first theory you discussed about um, you know, like the the, the Minuteman Care Conservation. Yes. I did hear about that theory. The reason I didn't include it in my episode was because I only heard it in, I don't know if you ever watched Kaylee Elisa's YouTube video on this case. She, I did, I did. I watched it. I only saw that on her video, and because her videos are no longer there, I was unable to find her sources, and I couldn't find much about that online. Discuss these that I can't have sources to, you know, like... Sure. Yeah, I use YouTube videos and other podcasts as a way of finding out more about cases, but I never use their information unless I can find a source for it myself. But I had I had heard of that because I'm sure that she mentioned that in 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 her video. But it really does seem like they did their their due diligence. But and it, it's again important to point out at this point that Martin Reich was never really considered a suspect yeah. because he was in New York that day. He was never really considered yeah. a, a suspect because. They, 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 they actually, as I understand it, looked fairly hard initially at Martin because the husband is always the suspect. Yeah, and, yeah, they always kind of look at. Yeah, they they confirmed that he was in New York. Uh, they all of the testimony they had was that the, the the relationship with Joan was a was a good one. They couldn't find any you know girlfriends or anything like that, which yeah. is often an indication of problem and there wasn't any life insurance or something that he could get by you know if, if Joan was, was dead so recall a clip from a TV sh- show where they talked about the fact that they may have even uh, had uh, police officers on planes that Martin took on some of the trips to New York they had to follow him there to see if he wound up with any girlfriends or anything like that and he never did and then afterwards, you know, during the um, investigation, he actually, on several occasions, tried to push the investigation forward, and he tended to cooperate with the police. He was a very, as you said before, reticent man. He didn't like to give newspaper uh, interviews and things like that very much, uh, yeah. but he did. He did talk freely with the police. So on the whole, I think he was. He was played fairly quickly. He, he he basically took care of his kids. He had, you know, uh, I think maybe somebody help at the house, a ho- housekeeper or something. He never remarried. And I mean, the interesting fact to me is he never changed his phone number, as if he thought that maybe someday Joan would get out of her state of uh, uh, of um, amnesia 
and uh, and maybe call the number. He said uh, he, in fact, he had a move from the house where the uh, the event took place on Old Bedford Road because almost all of those houses are gone now. Uh, the only, the Barker House is still there, and and I think the Schwartz House is still there. But other than that, all of those houses are gone. But but he wound up getting a home only a couple of miles away, still in Lincoln, that kind of looked like the old house, to be honest with you. And he basically lived there, never remarried. So if he had a motive, it's not at all clear. And the police cleared him, you know, fairly soon. Another thing that you'll know more about the law about beasts, and especially, you know, American law. So um, if I'm missing something here, please let me know. But as you say, Martin never remarried. As far as I'm led to believe, Joan has never actually been legally declared dead. He never had her declared dead. That's my understanding, yeah. Which means that, because I don't even believe that he divorced her in absentia, so he couldn't... As far as I understand, yeah. They were legally still married until he died in 2009, which seems like a bizarre thing to do if you were involved. You'd think that if you if you had wanted her um, deceased and say gotten someone else to do it that you would want clearly you do that because you vote you want out of that marriage so why would you then stay married to them legally until you die years years later and that again to me the marriage again you never know what happened behind closed doors but the fact that I find it quite sad but touching that he never did that because he was never legally at least able to or perhaps even want to move on, find someone new and, you know, get remarried. That clearly was not on his agenda whatsoever. Yeah, he, he seemed like a, a man, to, to my thinking anyways, of, of integrity. And, uh, you know, he, he was an ambitious guy. I mean, he got a Harvard MBA uh, in the 50s when not everybody was flocking to, you know, to get a, a, a MBAs. But, uh, you know, he, I, I think he had a lot of integrity. I think he, uh, my sense is that he really loved Joan and he took care of the kids. He must have loved the, yeah. you know, the kids as well. And uh, so, you know, on the whole, he'd be the first guy you'd put on your list to look at. But he, you know, once you got to understand the situation, I think, you know, you, you, you would eliminate him. And in my estimation, he should have been. And a lot of those suspects or, you know, persons of interest that you listed before, none of them really seem to have a personal connection to Joan, Um, which, again, why? You know, like, you know, if there's people close to Joan that you could maybe think, oh, well, maybe she'd beef with them or, you know, but this, and obviously we, we don't know, but this, there doesn't seem to be any. It's not clear. The police basically said that they didn't have a mo- motive. There was only one thing that they felt indicated the motive, um, which we'll probably talk about. But but yes, I mean, that was one of the problems in the case that, you know, they, they wound up without a motive, without a clear motive, and without real good uh, physical evidence. All they had was basically the fingerprints. And, you know, since the case couldn't be narrowed down to an assault. They had to also look at the possibility of an accident or something like that, or of abortion, botched abortion, and uh, the, or that she voluntarily left. 
So they had to basically stretch pretty thin because all of these theories, <clears throat> you know, none of those theories could be entirely ruled out. And all you could do is kind of prioritize things, but you had to take them all into consideration. So they were they were stretched over a lot of different possible possible theories of the case. Because we have discussed all the theories that I at least covered um, in my episode, do you want to discuss any theories that you that you perhaps have or any theories I haven't yet touched on? The one area that the police identified where they thought there could be a motive related to Jones' stepfamily. Yeah, yeah. And and the reason I, I don't want to go into a lot of detail. I would I would say for people to you know to to read the the book. But basically, the, uh, the her stepfather, I think we touched on this before, her stepfather, uh, Joan, always said that, that her stepfather had, had abused her, but was never specific about how the abuse took place. She told her mother at one point that if I told you what was going on, you would either divorce him or have him put into a mental institution. There was a lot of testimony about how he was very egocentric and uh, almost narcissistic at times, and that he wanted to control things. So a problem developed within the family whereby the, the children wanted to separate the youngest daughter and the mother from the father and basically paid for her, for both of them, to go across the country to California. And two of the three sons were also in California. So that left in the New York area, just the husband, the stepfather, and one son. And the stepfather at some point made overtures to try to get the mother and the younger daughter back. And they were somewhat inclined to go back, but there were, there were two impediments to it. One is that the siblings, the, the, the uh, brothers and, and, and Joan <clears throat> as well, didn't want to pay for the trip back because they didn't like the idea of the mother and the youngest daughter going back to the stepfather. And there was, and at some point, because there seemed to be the possibility that the mother would try to find a way to get back to the husband because someone once said that she was never comfortable when she was away from the husband was that um you know she was she was afraid that her children wouldn't approve of her of her doing it um but that she might nevertheless still try to to get back and Joan who it's it's a little ambiguous but it appears that Joan had never indicated to her uh, about the abuse. And so right. in a letter, she finally told the mother that there had been abuse. And the mother then said she was entirely shocked and that she had been <clears throat> upset for almost you know three weeks after that time. And then basically said that the reason she wasn't going to go back was because of Joan's letter. Right. So then that then they are would perhaps would make if he had found out about this letter right. could have possibly blamed Joan for the breakdown of his marriage and family unit. Yes. I think is the, the implication there, yeah. He could have been. And and you know, he took it as as being somewhat narcissistic, he would have been taken 
you know, that he was the victim and that other people were the aggressors. Yep. And mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and possibly one thing led led to another. Now there there are there are problems with the theory. Again, we don't know you know, the extent of any, of any abuse or, you know, the abuse is just essentially alleged by Joan. Um, although it was, I think, believed by the, that the, the father could, could have been involved in that and um, by the family. You know, it, he, it's not clear that he knew about the letter from, from Joan or that he knew what Joan had been saying. It's not clear that he knew that Joan was in Lincoln. He didn't have a car. He also was working uh, all all day on the day that the uh, the, the event happened, and us uh, and his fingerprints didn't didn't match. So there were a lot yeah there were a lot of reasons to think that he didn't do it. There was an aunt Florence in the family who felt from the beginning, and she wasn't alone, that when the event happened that she immediately thought of the stepfather as a possible perpetrator. And she basically said that either the stepfather did it or he had his son, the one that was still living in New York, do it, or he paid for somebody, you know, to do it. So she was fairly sure, although she wouldn't come right out and accuse him directly that, that something like that had, had taken place. The, the, the son who lived in New York had his prints taken and the son, um, his prints didn't, didn't match as well. So whoever left the prints was a stranger to, to he wasn't in the family. And so, you know, on that basis, there was enough to think that there may have been a motive that someone still may have uh, gone up to Massachusetts, perhaps to try to convince her to stop her opposition to uh, the move back by the mother and the uh, the younger daughter, uh, and that it's conceivable that it, it then got out of hand, that maybe Joan reached for the phone and then the rest came up, and that the reason she was taken out of the house was to, uh, you know, to find out from the stepfather, for example, what they ought to do about the situation, or maybe to bring her to him, you know, in New York. I mean, it's 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 unclear exactly what would have been. No one. He has never been uh, formally accused uh, by the police. He's never been uh, listed as as the main suspect of the the investigation. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons to believe that you know he didn't do it. But it seems to me the most fertile area for further investigation by the police if they take up the case, at least. They did, that's where I would start my cold case investigation if I were going to do it. Definitely, because I think as far as motive goes, that's perhaps the strongest one. Joan didn't seem to have any enemies. Like we say, Martin was already ruled out, but there was no indication that she had an unhappy marriage, that she was having an affair, nothing like that. So as far as motives go, other than a stranger, right. as far as personal motives go, this is the only one that we really have. But like you say, a lot of this is circumstantial. Yes. And, you know, there's no evidence to, like you say, he was never formally suspected. Um, His fingerprints were ruled out. So while the motive is compelling, you've got 
you know, to weigh that up with the evidence and the things that, you know, we know, like, like you say, and like you say in your book, he didn't know. There's no evidence to say that he, he might have known where she lived, but we don't know that he knew where she lived. And he lived in a different state to her. It's not like he was down the road. No, and he didn't have a car. Right. It would have made it quite difficult. Now, the interesting thing, I mean, you know, is that the car that was at the bottom of the street, uh, at the bottom of the driveway, someone took down the half of the license plate number, or at least remembered half of the license plate. They gave it to the police. And in December, the police found the car. And And they did a thorough forensic investigation and said that, no, they couldn't find anything in the car. Now, of course, that's an investigation back in the 60s. Whether they could find more now, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. But they did not find it. Now, the interesting thing was the car had been stolen, although I tried to investigate it, and I couldn't find out when it had been stolen. So, you know, there's always a possibility that if you had somebody going to the house with, um, with an intent to possibly intimidate Joan, either by physical intimidation or simply a latent threat over her children. You know, basically, you know, things could happen to to your children, so you better lay off this whole thing. So the car car was stolen, and you could see a situation where maybe people who didn't have ready access to a a vehicle could have made arrangements with contacts in in Boston and used a uh, stolen car. The car eventually was returned to a guy who I think may have lived in Medford or something like that, which is a, an inner suburb of, of Boston. So, um, you know, there, there's, there's, there's different things, you know, in the mix. Uh, there's also another reason that you could argue that um, he wasn't um, FBI profiler said to me, well, what's the motive for doing it if she's already spilled the beans? And right. he's right. Yeah. The only two reasons that I could think that there might still be a motive is one, she had never been explicit about what happened. So he could have basically, you know, said that, oh, I was just, you know, I patted her on the bum or something like that or some other thing that seemed, you know, minor. You know, in in addition to that, basically he wound up in California in the 60s. So in other words, one possible way around that issue is that he knew that if he could take that Joan would be the main person pushing to protect the particularly, well, the mother who she was fond of and the younger daughter who she took a particular interest in because of the experience she had had. And that that she was the major problem for him, that once she was eliminated from the equation or convinced not to be part of the equation, that he could have then convinced the wife who was always ready to go back to him that everything was okay. And in the end, he wound up back in California and he died out there in the, I think, the early 70s. That's one one possibility. I think there's other things that you could look at. I mean, there's certain certainly the angle of a serial killer or something like that, but we've touched on that a little bit. It seems to me less likely there's nobody with a good uh, modus operandi uh, that fits this type of situation of the mother being taken out of the house without evidence of, you know, sexual assault or violence. And so um, it's hard to say uh, what 
you know, other avenues they, they could follow, but there may be simply information available that isn't available to me and wasn't available in the file. Absolutely. I mean, with Joan's case, theories are, are endless, you know, because with, with cases where there's a lot of personal motive, I think you can kind of pin, you can pinpoint it slightly, slightly better. But like apart and apart from Fr- Frank and Latrice, there doesn't seem to be any sort of personal motive um, you know, other than right. him, and like I say, all the evidence that points to him is circumstantial, yes. and there's a lot of evidence that also points to it not being him. Yes. Anybody who is interested in in Jones' case, I really would recommend that you that you buy this this book because I, it's not until I read your book that I realised that they had found that car. Yes, that wasn't well known. Yeah, I, that wasn't. That wasn't known. To- that's a really interesting piece of information, and it's a shame that we don't know more about that. Like you say, that you weren't able to kind of follow up on that because that, to me, is the most promising lead of tracking down who was driving that car. You'd have to find out who's stolen. <laughs> yeah, because they, you know, who stole it, who was driving it, because because of how long. It's been since this case was solved, like since this case happened. That's the problem. This, that to me, of all the things that we've discussed today, that to me is the lead that could potentially break this case. I agree. I agree. Wide, wide open is that, is that detail. Um, and like I said, that isn't mentioned in any source that I read until obviously I, I read your book. So I would really urge anyone who is interested in this case to read it. I've mentioned it earlier, but it's called A Kitchen Painted in Blood, The Unsolved Disappearance of, of Joan Reish. And it gives a lot of context into not just Joan, but the area. You know, someone like me who isn't even from America, has never visited the country, I was able to get a very graphic image in my head of this area, where everything was. There's even some like small diagrams in, sort of like illustrating you can really put yourself in in this in the scenario. You can really see it as if it was fiction, you know. And it's Jones' case is one that you would expect to this sort of plot. You would expect to read in you know a fiction book in a in a thriller in a mystery. And it's the reason why people are drawn to this case because it seem it does seem like something you would read in in, in a book. Absolutely. You know, it seems like the plot of quite a you know a gripping fiction novel and obviously it's not and like I said earlier I really try to bring the human element to to these cases because people need to remember it's not Joan was a person she still has children alive possibly grandchildren possibly friends and I mean sad to say but the chances of Joan being alive I believe are not very high but if she is she would be 91 years old yes so, you know, she's she would be at an age where she possibly, had this not happened to her, she could still be here today. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? She could still be here enjoying her children. Her, I don't know if she would have had grandchildren, but, you know, perhaps living, living her life, you know, while this case is an older case, it's not that old that Joan couldn't still be with us. And as I said earlier, it's it's tragic that this is the circumstances in which we're talking about about Joan, a woman who really seemed to be ahead of her time in many in many ways. Um, that really got to me when I was researching and reading your book about you know her helping Alice 
leave her abusive husband because back then marital abuse was look people looked the other absolutely. way absolutely absolutely and it took it would be very very brave you know and very forward thinking to help someone i'm not saying it, it didn't happen but a lot of the times it was ignored and a lot of the times women were considered to be the property of their husbands and she helped her get away she was you know she she got a degree she kind of worked up the, the career ladder she was a very a woman ahead ahead of her time she was, yeah yeah she's a she's a very interesting woman x the whole mystery just to, you know, to, yeah. to, to, to learn about. I mean, you know, it's not somebody up in the pantheon of, of, of American heroes or something like that, but she's an interesting woman. She really is. Absolutely. While obviously we need to spread awareness to her case and try to get her case solved, that's really important. What's equally as important is remembering who Joan, who Joan was. Absolutely. You know, and remembering this, this isn't fiction. This actually, while the details of it could easily be mistaken for one that is it's not right women deserves justice so does her family they deserve closure as to know what happened to joan that fateful day and that's why we're having this conversation i'm sure that's why people who are listening have, have tuned in because we care you know about these people and right. and their families right. before we round off today is there anything that you would kind of like to say or or discuss before we kind of round up our our discussion today no, I mean, I think probably talked more than I, you know, you expected. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, well, thank you for coming on thank to the podcast and for having this. This no, you're you're more than welcome. It's been it's been a pleasure to listen to your theories and your insights on the case because you know you've had access to a lot more information than I think most, most of us have. have. Barring law enforcement, you know, have had on this case. And I say the book is available um, on Kindle. You can buy the paper version on Amazon or in in a a bookstore. I would highly recommend. um, I'll actually leave links um, for the Kindle version in the Amazon link below. They are not affiliated. Hello. Hello, 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 hello. And there we have it. That was me and Stephen's discussion on Joan Reish's case. This was a very exciting episode for me to record and I want to thank Stephen again for coming onto the podcast and sharing his invaluable insights into Joan's case. I am very aware that this episode is by far the longest episode I have ever released on this podcast, so thank you very much for listening till the very end. Please stay safe and have a good night. <laughs>